The Bain Free Radio Hour. This week on the Bain Free Radio Hour, warring cults, ancient evils from another dimension, and the FBI agents who are hot on their trails. Plus, we continue our serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David Afsharirod, sitting in for Tony Daniel this week and next. Tony is lost in the wilds of Europe, but he assures us he'll find his way back across the Atlantic and onto the podcast soon. In the meantime, I talked with Eric Flint and Alistair Kimball about their new novel, Iron Angels, which is out now in hardcover from Bain. And we will, of course, continue our serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. But first, the news. We're halfway through September, and that means there are only a few days left to enter our monthly contest. This month, we're giving away a signed copy of Tony Daniels' newest, The Amber Arrow. The novel is set in an alternate history in which the Vikings discovered and colonized North America. Now, such a dramatic shift in events would no doubt alter the timeline more or less beyond recognition, but for the sake of argument, let's say it didn't. What would 21st century American pop culture look like with a Viking twist? What would our sports teams be called? How would Facebook look different? What would McDonald's serve? Let us know your thoughts in a short paragraph, that's 100 words or fewer, for a chance to win. But you'll have to hurry. The contest closes September 20th. To learn more, go to www.bain.com contests. And now I discuss Iron Angels with co-authors Eric Flint and Alistair Kimball. Hey everyone, I am here with the co-authors of a new urban fantasy novel out now in hardcover from Bain Books. It is called Iron Angels and Eric Flint and Alistair Kimball are here talking with me. Eric, of course, has been on the podcast many times, and uh, I'm sure Bane readers are familiar with him. He's the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, which started with 1632 and is now on volume 20-something. I've lost track. Uh, he's also written six popular novels in the Belisarius series with David Drake and has collaborated with David Weber on 1633, 1634, The Baltic War, and the Honorverse series entry, Cauldron of Ghosts. Uh, there are quite a few other uh, novels under his belt, but we'll just leave it there for the sake of time. Eric, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. And uh, joining us is also Alistair Kimball. He is a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working on national security matters and processing crime scenes as a member of the evidence response team. And uh, that will, I'm sure, play a role in uh, writing this book with Eric. Uh, Alistair, thanks for coming on the Bain Free Radio Hour. Oh, thanks for having me. I've uh, This is my first time, so I'm very excited to be on. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, so... Uh, I guess let's give the reader, uh, the listeners, I should say, uh, just an idea about um, what Iron Angels is about. Um, whoever wants to take that, uh, just kind of give them a little thumbnail sketch of it, if you would. Well, sure. Why don't you go ahead? Uh, sure. So um, the basic premise behind it is it's a, a group of FBI agents who are trying to prevent a cult from extracting powers from another universe and some people you know believe that these are alien powers some people believe they're biblical um so that's the basic conceit and it's basically how uh, eric presented it to me um initially yeah well since you brought that up let's talk about that um how did you guys uh how did this project come about and how did you go about working about on it together well um I've known Alistair for a, a while because he's been writing stories for the Granville Gazette set in the 1632 universe. And um, one of the things I do pretty regularly is uh, 
uh, quite regularly, in fact, is is whenever one of the people, one of the authors working in that universe seems to me to have reached a point where they could benefit from doing longer work, like on a novel, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll raise the possibility with them of something they might be interested in working on. Uh, and that's usually based on their own experience, what seems to me, uh, I don't know, lack of a better term, call it a skill set. Uh, it was very easy in the case of Alistair because he's an MPI agent. I mean, he actually is. And that's the kind of experience that's very hard to, uh, in fact, it's basically impossible to um, either have it or you don't. Let's put it that way. Um, so I uh, figured that the way to do this was I'd design a story that was, um, you know, that, that played to his strengths. And I'd had this, I, I the one major subgenre I've never worked in uh, is urban fantasy, and I had a desire to do that for some time. So I... Uh, Plus, I was also kind of interested in the possibilities of developing a universe uh, based in, in where I live, in my own neck of the woods in the United States, which is northwest Indiana. Um, it seemed to me there were some good possibilities there for uh, some basic premises for um for urban fantasy novel. Uh, this is now probably the largest steel producing area in the United States. And so I I, it, I designed a storyline that's uh, um, based around that. Uh, it's not based on, on the Celtic uh, framework. It's, it's quite different, actually, but it, it's got somewhat similar. Um, Hey, there's a lot you can do with steel, let's just put it that way, uh, when you're working in this kind of urban fantasy. So that's how the idea got started. And then uh, Alistair and I, uh, he came out and uh, uh, stayed with my wife and I for a few days to research the area. And while he was out here, we discussed and worked out the plot. And uh, and then he wrote the first draft, and I wrote the, the second draft. And that's um, pretty much how it happened. Yeah, Alistair, I was going to ask if you wanted to add to that. Just because, I mean, Eric is an old hand at working with a co-author, but um, this is, I guess, your first novel. So what was that like working with um, with Eric Flint on, on a book? Oh, geez. You know, when uh, it's funny. I just thought I was having dinner with Eric and, you know, just catching up and, and whatever. And we're at dinner and he just he turns to me and he has this idea. And, you know, it's <laughs> Eric Flint's like talking to me about a book. So I was... You know, I had to make sure I wasn't dreaming. Um, you know, when Eric Flynn asked you to write something, you're kind of like, uh, gee, Eric, no, I don't want to write with you, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so like I, of course, I'm like, well, yeah, Eric, what do you want to do? So, I mean, the way he, he told it is exactly correct, other than, you know, my astonishment that he actually wanted to work with me. Um, but given that he wanted a strong law enforcement component, um, I mean, I, I realized, okay, <laughs> it makes sense. Um, that we work together on this sort of thing. Um, and so I went home and pretty much, uh, I don't know, was over the moon about it. And working with Eric, I'll just add in real quick, was, uh, you know, a wonderful experience. And I'm very thankful that he and, uh, and Lou opened their home up to me. And we did a lot of scout um, site um, scouting, basically. And a lot of those things that we drove around north, you know, northwestern uh, Indiana and parts of Chicago ended up in the book. Yeah, I was wondering if we could, I don't know if there's much more to say about that, but that, two things came across and I, when reading this, um, <clears throat> well, more than two, but these two came across, is that, I don't know, I'm not an FBI agent, but the FBI stuff felt very real and it felt different than sometimes what you see um, in movies and television depicting the FBI as, and also the sense of place was very, very strong in this, um, with this, uh, Indiana suburb of Chicago steel industrial area where Eric lives. And, um, obviously the FBI stuff is coming from Alistair's experience, but, um, I guess if you could just maybe talk about the setting a little bit more, cause it's a part of the country I didn't know anything about until I, well, 
actually I knew about it when I read Eric's story in um, Black Tide Rising, which is also set in this part of the world. But until then, I had never heard of that. And I'm thinking it's a part of the country that maybe a lot of readers aren't as familiar with. Uh, well, they're not. That's part of the reason why I chose it. Um, this is a uh, it's a very working class area. Um, uh, it's it's uh, demographically it's racially mixed, about evenly white, black, and Hispanic. Um, the specific ratios vary from one town to another. It's a collection of smaller towns right across the state line from Chicago. It's it's demographically really part of the Chicago area. If you look, for instance, at voting patterns, it's it's very different from most of Indiana. Um, uh, this is really kind of part of the Chicago uh, area, but it's got its own characteristics. Part of the reason why I thought it would be interesting to set it that there's just the fact most people don't know anything about it. It's uh, Or if they do know anything, it's the experience of driving through it, which I had years ago, and looking at these burning smokestacks and saying, boy, I'd never live here, uh, which is uh, exactly what I said many years ago, and then I wound up living here. Um, so I thought it would make an interesting setting for those, those various reasons. Um, and, you know, I think it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, and having a chance to go out there and actually, you know, visit the area. I went out there two times and stayed with Eric, and just being able to, to drive around that area and really get the feel for it helped me kind of dial in when I was writing. And then, of course, Eric tweaked and, and you know, wrote it to make that setting come alive even more. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's turn now to a little bit of the um, the FBI, the law enforcement stuff in the book. Um, so Jasper Wilde is, I guess, our main character, and uh, he is a—he's an FBI agent there in uh, Indiana, and he is um, shortly joined by uh, Temple Black, who is from the—I guess from headquarters—and who is heads up something called the SAG or SAG, um, which is a less sexy name for the X Files or the Blue Rose Task Force from. Uh, from Twin Peaks, which I thought you had a lot of fun with that kind of poking fun at the name, which I thought was great. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about these characters and, and the SAG and what they are doing? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so <laughs> it's funny. So Jasper Wilde's uh, real name is Z Jasper Wilde. So that's kind of a joke with the Bureau as well. And ever since J. Edgar Hoover, there's so many agents in the Bureau who do that first initial and then go by their middle name. Um, so that was kind of a nod. <laughs> to that and uh and then having headquarters come out and kind of step on an investigation is something else that happens uh quite a bit where they want to kind of assert themselves in the field um rather than kind of guide the field now um scientific anomalies group um is kind of that area like you're saying like the x-files or blue rose except you know a funnier name and uh it's kind of also a place where people who are on the outs uh, with the higher-ups in the Bureau kind of are sent. And so Temple Black is one of those who's kind of been on the outs because, you know, she's got a strong personality. She's female. She's black. And, you know, it's been difficult for her. And so her partner at headquarters is an Indian uh, agent um, from, you know, Asian, Asian Indian. And he's also kind of on the outs because he's a little different. Um, and so when they meet up with Jasper, he's also a guy who's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, in Indiana at least, for the Bureau, because that where he works is actually technically part of the Indianapolis field office, even though it's so close to Chicago. So they're kind of out there on an island. And so Jasper is also kind of on the outs with his higher-ups. And so it makes for some uh, interesting chemistry when they finally get together. Yeah, and I, I really like their uh, chemistry. There's a lot of, um, I guess, witty banter in this, and and a lot of maybe witty banter is not right. They kind of poke fun at each other and get in little digs all the time. Um, I don't know. I don't, there's not much to talk about that, I guess. But it, it was that that was that fun to write. When I first, Eric can chime in on this, but when I first wrote uh, some of the scenes where they're having this banter. Um, 
you know, Eric's like, you know, they bicker a lot, uh, you know, is, and I'm like, well, that's how it really is. We bicker a lot. And he's like, I don't know. Maybe we need to tone that down. And Eric and I talked about that a lot, about, you know, maybe I went too far in having them kind of pick at each other. <laughs> well, it, yeah, the thing about that is um, – I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Uh, <laughs> there are things in when you write something that – I don't know how to put it. When people read the written page, they don't react quite the same way they do uh, if they hear it verbally. Uh, one classic way that manifests itself is that uh, whenever I write a uh, a novel, one of the things I always do is go through the manuscript from the point of view of looking for profanity because I'm going to wind up putting a lot more in there than I realize because when you're writing dialogue, people actually do use a lot of profanity. It partly depends who they are, but a lot of characters that I'm portraying in, in novels, you know, use a lot of profanity. And the problem is that it may work fine in real life when you hear it, but when you read it, it tends to have a different impact on people. So that was my initial reaction to some of the bickering that the heroes are going through was that it, I didn't doubt that it was realistic. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't. But I don't know how to put it. If I were to depict the scene, I used to be a machinist. If I were to write a scene where I depicted perfectly accurately the dialogue of machinists just standing around a tool crib chatting. People would swear I was writing a William Burroughs novel, you know, um, where, you know, four-letter Anglo-Saxon words seem to be, you know, essential auxiliary verbs without which no sentence works grammatically in English. That is how machinists talk in the real world. Uh, but if you read it on a page, it just doesn't seem the same way. Um, mm -hmm. It's the same phenomenon that people have noticed now for many years where you've got to be a little careful when you're communicating with someone online because they don't see the body language and emojis are only a very crude approximation of the subtleties of body language. So you have to be a little careful what you say because it doesn't always come across the same way online that it would if you were actually in person with somebody. And that was just the only issue that I, you know, it, it <laughs> struck me. It was a little, I thought, God damn, these people are fighting a lot. You know? uh, so in the final draft, we left most of it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's still bicker a lot. Uh, yeah, although do. less so as well, less so as time goes on. Part of what's happening is that they are getting used to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, as time goes on, they start. Um, you know, they have various. Well, for one thing, they have various adventures together, um, and so they start getting along better. But uh, uh, anyway, that's how that happens. Yeah. And I think Temple realizes that that's kind of Jasper's defense mechanism is the kind of correct yeah, in yeah. hard, tough situations. That's true. That is true. That is how he deals with stuff. Uh, it was kind of interesting for me because um, uh, these characters are edgier than I normally would, would have, um, which I found interesting to work with. Um, uh, it's just, you know, it's just, it, it, when it, when you work with, one of the things I like about co-authoring novels is that uh, it's always, every book's different because you're working with a different partner and uh, you, you sort of get used to how they're looking at the world and how they're shaping things. And it's always different from one person to the next. It's never the same. Yeah, I can imagine that'd be very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm <clears throat> talking about written word versus spoken. I had a writing teacher years ago say something like, think of it as having every curse word has like three, 
every time it's written, it's like someone said it three times, you know, which is just an approximation, but it's what you're talking about. It feels very different written. So, but I, I did like that. And I think you guys hit a good balance there because it, it did feel, um, accurate without being overwhelming. Maybe, um, I, I, um, I wanted to talk about maybe a little bit more. We're talking about the sort of gritty real world of this book, which is great, but there's also some um, rather fantastic elements to it. Um, so let's talk about these cults uh, or the cult and the, and the people that, that they're battling against. We've got a few different groups going on here and um, maybe without giving everything away, uh, we could just talk a little bit about what they are, what they're doing and how they're going about it and what they're trying to bring about. Malister, you want to take that? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so what's uh, interesting about these cults is that they they're aware of each other. Um, one's actually a cult, one's a guild, even though they're they're kind of they're at odds. Um, even though from the outside, from when the bureau first takes this, uh, starts investigating, they have no idea that you know there's good guys and there's bad guys in these cults. Um, so the cult, one, the cult's aim is actually to, um, and really it comes down to the cult leader. He has a bunch of lackeys and he recruits these guys who are seeking something greater and he makes a lot of promises, except he, like most cult leaders, simply want the, wants the power for himself. And he is found, um, through the cult, um, these cults exist throughout the world. Um, that's, um, that's not shown in this book. Um, however, so the, real, the background of this cult it actually comes from on the border of China and India. That's where their origin is. Um, and whether the cult leader is from there or not, we don't really know too many details about him. But he wants to extract this power from um, what are essentially some people believe are aliens, some people think are um, aliens or demons, um, like in, in a biblical sense. And so this other world that rubs against ours is the source of that power. And then there's a guild that opposes these guys. And then from the Bureau's perspective, both of these groups are bad, at least in the beginning. Yeah, one of the things I liked about it is that there is a little bit of um, confusion. You know, we're in there sort of. We do see the guild and the cult some from their point of view, but there is also a little bit of confusion in, in a good way, not confusion in a what's going on way, but uh, I don't want to read this any longer. Confusion, in a good way, confusion of exactly who's on what side and who's playing against each other. And I I like that because it, it felt, you know, we were sort of in there in the weeds with, with the FBI um, trying to figure this out. Um, <clears throat> uh, so so about these cults, I you know, I there's a lot of cool stuff here. Was this something... You guys, based on, um, you know, obviously angels and aliens and demons and whatnot, uh, whether or not those exist, we're not entirely sure, but myth existing mythology, or is this a wholly original um, concept that you came up with? It's not based on existing mythology. Um, the use of, of the power of, the, of steel and iron in the book that's been that's a very common that's a very major theme in celtic mythology but it's done completely differently in this book it doesn't this is not a, a, a you know a fey world at all um it's actually unclear we deliberately left it unclear um obviously two universes are interpenetrating but is is that a natural phenomenon or a supernatural phenomenon, and, and different, both FBI agents and then later on they start consulting with scientists, have different opinions on it. Uh, Temple is is religious, so she views it in a biblical way. Uh, Jasper's not particularly religious, so he tends to think it's probably, um, you know, just they're essentially aliens of some sort. And then later on, an astrophysicist points out to him, and he'll consult with a theologian, but he points out to him that, that there's not necessarily any uh, contradiction between the two, because assuming a religious explanation, you have no way of knowing how God might have created hell. 
maybe he it is an alien universe, and that's you know so that 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 there's really no difference between them, um, and that's not resolved by the end of the book. Um, it's it never does get cleared up. Uh, you do see the monsters from their own perspective, but they they have a. Um, that's hard to describe. I, I wrote that one passage right at the beginning of the prologue. They have a very strange way of thinking, so it's you kind of understand what they're thinking, but not really completely. Um, and but it's it, we essentially created it ourselves. It's not there's nothing in this book that's based on existing either mythologies or um, the cults tie into some aspects of, of Asian um, mythology, but it, it's pretty loose. Um, um, and also, one of the things that should become clear to the reader is what the cultists think is happening is not necessarily what's actually happening. Uh, you know, I mean, they they... Um, suffer from a lot of delusions. Um, that's true. The cult and, and the guild, which are more or less the good guys, um, they actually don't really. They understand they don't really quite know what's going on. It's just this is a long, ancient. This struggle's been going on. It becomes clear as you read the book. It's been going on for centuries. Um, and where to originate, exactly how to originate. There's still a lot left unclear uh, in the course of the book. I mean, the focus is on on the experience of these FBI agents and, um, and and how they see it and deal with what happens. And and they, they, they win or they deal with the actual struggle that, that confronts them. But there's a whole lot that remains unresolved at the end of it. Yeah, um, thinking about that prologue, talking about that prologue that we get from the um, alien, demon, interdimensional beings, it I really like that uh, section, and it's it reminded me in a way of almost like Lewis Carroll's writing, where there's a lot of phrases and words that you kind of get the feel, but you couldn't tell tell what it means um, exactly. Um, one thing I also want to talk, so these are kind of these heady ideas of these interdimensional possibly beings and all this. I wanted to kind of get down on the uh, gross out level, which is that there's a few really cool gross deaths in this book, which I really liked. Um, <laughs> and I wondered how, if you could maybe talk about uh, those a little bit and uh, how, where the ideas for that came from. Cause I think um, I, this is very early on the, the um, how the cultists commit suicide. I don't think I've ever seen or read that before. So uh, we don't want to give away all the good, gross stuff, but uh, we talk about that a little bit, maybe. Well, that that early suicide—that was actually uh, uh, that was Alistair's idea. I that was not in the original plot, and I was struck when it when he showed up. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I think it works quite well, actually. But um, uh, we deliberately. Um, wanted to make some of the uh death scenes pretty gross. Um and so the way in which these monsters or creatures, whatever they are, um kill people is well one thing about it is that one thing that should sort of become clear to the reader is that from the point of view of the of the creature, the monsters, whatever they are, um, they, they, they don't really visualize the what they're killing as people. I mean, it, it just you know that it, it's it's not part of their their framework, you might say. Um, so that's part of what we hoped would be the kind of horror aspect of it. This is, among other things, it's intended to be a horror store. Um, and that's partly how, you know, we wound up doing it. Was, uh, <laughs> um, 
I think it works pretty well, actually. Um, but it's it's tricky pulling it off. Um, yeah. Part of what I enjoyed writing this is this is a lot of this is new to me. I mean, you know, I I, I this is a new kind of book for me, and uh, and I enjoyed working on it for that reason. Uh, uh, you know, it's just it's it's always interesting working on stuff that you haven't done before and figuring out how to make it work right. Yeah. Um, I'll just add a little bit about the uh, gross death. Um, so as part of my uh, bureau job, I, I, I process crime scenes, some pretty gross crime scenes. However, I also have access to chemists and physicists. And, like, we have people who know everything in the bureau. Like It's a very diverse group of people. So I consulted with a chemist on that early death of the cultists. And uh, when I asked him, he said, oh, you ought to do it this way. And I said, well, we need to make it work like this. And so he came up with a solution for my problem of how to have them create, um, how to commit suicide in that manner. <laughs> so that was very fun to be able to spitball with somebody at the Bureau um, about that. Yeah, that would be a, a great resource, I would think, for writing something like this, um, it, as well as obviously your own experiences. Um, well, I guess I've got two more questions. One is, um, just, is there anything else about the book you guys want readers to know? And then the second is, uh, can we look forward to more or would you guys be open to doing more if, uh, if Bane was, uh, was interested, uh, would this be a world you'd want to go back to? Oh, we'd very much like to continue the story. It's, uh, Alistair and I have talked about it. It's, um... If we do what we're going to have to do, which is part of the fun of it, is um, it would require developing a really um, well-developed and, and pretty elaborate um, uh, background, uh, more than we did in the book. Um, but there's a lot that's left un unstated, unresolved in the book, uh, which is deliberate on our part. And um, one of the things we would have to do is 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 uh, change that. Um, but yeah, no, I think we'd we'd certainly enjoy uh, revisiting this book, uh, this this storyline. Yeah. Uh, you um, know, like everything else in publishing, that will it always depends on how the book sells. You know, I mean, there's never any way around that. So, and we won't know that for a while yet. But yeah, we we enjoy continuing to work on it. And so um, I'll, I'll just add in um, some other bits about the book. Um, I, I think yeah, um, if I'd want and people to to take away from it, uh, or if it, this might entice them, is that a there's FBI agents that are competent, but they also show weaknesses, and you know they show that they're real people, and they do get their butts handed to them at times. Um, Another thing I'm I'm very proud of in this book, and I think Eric probably feels the same way, is that we have a diverse cast of people, and there's some strong personalities in there. And there's at least, I think, three strong, really strong female characters in this book that all takes center stage quite a bit. Um, and I just think uh, the interactions between the these characters, um, it was just a lot of fun to write them. And I think we showed these people as like real breathing people. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I also thought about that, about uh, there's uh, quite a diverse cast in here. Um, and you have some fun with that too, with some people's last names. I won't spoil the joke. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, Okay. Well, gentlemen, I think that would just about do it for us. So I'll just tell uh, everyone again that the book is called iron angels and it is out now in hardcover and ebook, and uh, you should run out and buy it so that we get more of these stories of uh, Jasper Wilde and Temple Black and the crew um, fighting against maybe aliens, maybe demons in the future. So, um, Alistair uh, Kimball and Eric Flint, thank you guys so much for being on the Bane Free Radio Hour. Okay, our pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. And now part 17 of our complete serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 10 Dutiful Passage 
Sean looked again at the incoming message queue at the bottom of his screen, which was simply absurd. The calm would chime if a message came in. Gods knew he had work to do, but he couldn't seem to settle his mind. In fact, the only useful thing he'd done in the last two hours was to send his regrets to the Chessel's World Portmaster, citing press of business. One ought, at least, to keep up appearances, even if one now suspected one's prospective host of duplicity. Or perhaps especially. Deliberately, he flipped open the file on Langlast, their next likely port of call, and began to read the Precis. Five minutes later, when he realized that he had read the same page four times without recalling a single word, he admitted that he might benefit from a quick session of self-healing to reestablish focus and deliberation. He stood and moved into the center of the room, setting his feet firmly and deliberately relaxing his shoulder muscles. Focus, he thought. Yes, focus and cool deliberation. He closed his eyes and took six deep breaths, relaxing more deeply with each until he sensed the change of place and opened his eyes to the soft fogs of heel space. He breathed in the fog. It had a mouthfeel like spun sugar and tasted of citrus. Well, Focus had been called for, after all. Best that the healer and the one to be healed both had their wits about them. Again, he filled his mouth with fog. This time, the taste was sharp and pungent, and relaxed into an aspect of calm objectivity as he waited for the one who had called him here. The fogs before him parted, and a man stood forth. Tall and lean, his hair the silky white of a young child that had never darkened into gold, with silver eyes under thin, slanted white brows, a face that was long and sharp and brown. He wore a wine-colored shirt, and a purple ring flashed on his hand. Sean the healer extended a hand. Sean the trader met it. Emotions flowed between them, worry, fear, and anger. Quite a lot of anger, which was not usual. He was an even-tempered man. Until he was not. Still, it was a straightforward thing. Merely a sorting, a soothing, and a sharpening. The personality matrix was firm, informed by love, commitment, and clarity of purpose. There was no indication that the unusual levels of anger had eroded either his heart or his ethics. Excellent. Sean the healer reached forth and commenced the work sorting the tangled, hot and cold emotions, soothing the troubled soul, sharpening the beleaguered intellect. It went well, the work, and nothing out of the ordinary, nothing unexpected, until abruptly a weight fell upon his senses, and the edges of his sight darkened. He withdrew slightly from the work and brought his attention to the man who was himself, the man who was not himself. Long and lean and hawk-faced, yes, so much remained the same. But this man's hair was black and lush, woven into a single thick braid, his clothing dark and shabby. His smile was sardonic, and there was a sense of both stillness and motion about him. Sean the healer looked down, foreknowing what he would see. A worn red gaming counter danced across the other's brown knuckles, plunged off the edge of the hand, and vanished into the ether of heel space. Sean the healer felt a thrill, perhaps of horror. 
Return me myself, he said, his words swallowed by the fog. The smile grew softer. Perhaps there was sympathy in those space-black eyes. But I am yourself, as we discussed, and you will need all of me soon or late. Your lady will also need Moonhawk, I fear, in every aspect possible. You terrify me. Not in this place, child. There is no terror here, or none that is not soon soothed and straightened and made into joy. He raised his hands, showing the marker between two fingers, and smiled. But I did not come here merely to visit. I would ask a question regarding our heart, if you will grant the boon. It was honestly said, the fog would have shown him any falseness, and an honest request for healing must be honored in heal space, even if it came from oneself. Sean inclined his head. Ask. It is a small thing, but I wonder, this shadow upon your heart. You have straightened it, and you have soothed it, but you have not transformed it into joy. These are the deaths at Solcintra I think you still feel. Sean sighed. Some things do not transmute into joy. He raised a hand, seeing the amethyst throw lightning into the fog. I am a healer. My strengths are rooted in life. Though we did what was correct and necessary, yet I think that if we use the methods of our enemy, are we not our enemy? Would you have healed them all, your enemies? Some things, said Sean, cannot be healed. But perhaps we should first make the attempt. Sweet child, but I am of a mind with you, Lute smiled. Astonishing, is it not? Who, in fact, would have thought so, Sean said, smiling himself. Now that we have dealt with this matter upon our heart, will you return me to myself? Of course I will, said Lute. Only meet me halfway. He extended a hand that was innocent of rings. Sean the healer met it, felt his fingers strongly gripped. A tide flowed between them, of what strange waters he could not have said. He sensed no poison, nor anything inimical, though he tasted the essence of years stretching into a past far exceeding his own. There was a moment when his senses faltered, the fogs of heel space melting around him until it seemed that he stood astride galaxies and looked out over the glittering lives of an entire universe. He stretched godlike and contracted into himself, senses reeling, heel space cuddled about his shoulders like a blanket. Sean the healer blinked his sight clear and looked into the familiar face of Sean the traitor, who wore an expression of wry resignation tinged with wary wonder. What cannot be mended must be worn rent, the traitor offered. The healer sighed. That would go down easier if I were not trained to mend. Let us have one more look at us. He extended a hand on which the purple ring flashed a little more brightly than its wont in this place, and met a hand wearing a ring identical in all respects. Emotions flowed between them sprightly like the stream that had threaded Triala Fantral's parklands and into which he had merrily fallen as a child. 
The personality grid sparkled, reminiscent of the ring. Emotions were smooth, if no less complex. The energy that had informed the tangled coil of worry and distraction had been properly redirected to focusing the intellect. The soul was calmed, and there was about the whole a subtle aroma of joy. The healer met the trader's eyes. What is done is done, they said together, and did not add, for good or ill. Each opened their arms. Stepping forward, they embraced into oneness. Sean opened his eyes to the comfortable sight of his office and a priority message on his screen informing him that the shuttle bearing third mate Tiazen, Comtech Triloff, and trader Yos Gallen had been cleared for lift from Chesselport. Paddy sat in the jump seat, but for once her attention was not on the screens or the pilot's boards. Her eyes were turned inward, all of her attention on the necessity of containing the conflagration within her. She was angry. Well, who wouldn't be angry to have their profit stolen and their trade made into dust, less than dust? For an incomplete trade did not count toward the total of successful trades that would move her from prentice to trader. But there was worse. Worse than the anger, somehow feeding it, was the fear. The images the guard had given her of herself falling, the jerk, the snap as the rope halted the fall, and her feet moving in protest until they stopped and there was only the broken body, brown hair tangled over her downturned face, swinging, softly swinging, as if prompted by the gentlest breeze. Her throat closed and her stomach clenched, her heart pounded in her ears, her fingernails digging into her sweaty palms. She had known herself for craven, a coward unworthy to stand in the ranks of Corval pilots. But this, this was terrible beyond anything she had previously experienced. She needed to dance, to dance the fear into the place she had built for it, deep inside herself where it would never be found or seen even by healer eyes. There was no room on the shuttle, and she feared, yes, she feared that the anger might consume her into ash before they gained the passage. She clenched her muscles and tucked her head, teeth grit, and felt someone touch her arm. Fiery anger coalesced if she breathed out she would breathe fire and destroy whomever dared to. Paddy? She recognized Sally Triloff's voice and gasped, sucking living flame down her throat, whimpering at the pain. Arms closed around her. She shook her head, not daring to open her mouth, and Sally rubbed her back. Oh, sweetie, go ahead and cry. I bet even the master trader would cry if he'd been treated like that. The least they could have done was return your goods. It was perhaps the ridiculous notion that master trader Yos Gallen would have, under any circumstances, allowed his profit to be stolen from him. Or perhaps it was the offer of a temporary bond of kinship, a place no larger than the circle of Sally's arms in which it would be not improper to indulge in emotion. Or perhaps she was simply that tired. Whichever, and entirely to her own astonishment, her face pressed against Sally's shoulder, Patty did indeed begin to cry. Sean stood with Priscilla in the docking area antechamber, his hand in hers. I'm to tell you that you will need your moonhawk in all her aspects.
thoughts, he murmured, surprising both of them. He hadn't intended to tell Priscilla about his encounter in heel space, at least not until they were alone and very private. Her head turned sharply, and she looked directly into his eyes. From loot? Yes, from loot, meddling creature. He would also advise me that I'm going to need him soon or late. That's fair warning, then, Priscilla said. Fairer had he said which it was, Sean muttered. And Priscilla might perhaps have answered that, save the light over the shuttle bay door went from ruby to emerald. First through the door was third mate Tiazen, calm and forthright as ever. He bowed precisely to the captain's honor and murmured, Captain, I will have a report. Yes, she said, but tell me first, are you harmed or in need? I am well. The young trader. He stopped short, as if catching himself on the edge of an infelicity, and looked to Sean. The guards were not above playing games, and I fear the young trader took some of their less savory tales to heart. Certainly, the disposition of her trade angered her. He hesitated and inclined his head. Comtech Triloff offered a comrade's care during the lift, he concluded. It may be done with now. Thank you, Sean said, for your care. Dilnem bowed. Captain, master trader. He took himself off down the hall as Comtech Triloff approached, anger glowing orange in the region of her heart walking beside her, seeming slightly subdued, was Paddy. Sean considered her on all the levels available to him as a healer. On the surface, he saw the sweet, pale greens and blues of utter calmness, which was startling. He tried to recall where Sally Triloff had ranked in empathy, but even if she were a full healer herself, he would still have expected to see. There, beneath the damp pastels that might well denote a good cry, he found scorch marks along her matrix, remnants of an incandescent anger. That was more in keeping with the nature of events, he thought, relieved. After all, the child had seen her prophet cruelly taken from her and been arrested. These things sit ill with traders as a class, and those of Corval, more so. He transferred his attention to Sally Triloff, whose emotive grid was still ablaze with fury. Thank you, he said gently, for your care of my child. She blinked perhaps not expecting him to take that road. Sally had been with the passage, worked with Leadens long enough to have a feel for Melanti. She would have expected him to be the master trader in the matter, as Patty had been acting as trader herself. A comrade's care, though. That was personal, which perhaps Sally hadn't thought about. You're welcome, she said now. It wasn't right what happened to her, to her cargo. Ah, Terrans and their touching notion of right. Sean smiled. Sadly, this sort of thing does happen from time to time. Not often, but infuriating all the same. Yes, sir. Sally returned the smile tentatively and went on to speak with Priscilla. Paddy looked up at him. I lost my prophet, she said, merely stating a fact. So I've heard. You must tell me all about it. In fact, I wonder if you would share a private nuncheon with me, so that you may tell me all about it. She took a hard breath, and he tasted anger and loss, which were expectable, and resignation which was not. 
He waited, showing her a calm face, sternly refusing to reach out and hug her. I'd be pleased to report on my trade, Patty said properly, her voice at least revealing nothing save what might have been an entirely reasonable weariness. Splendid, he said, showing broad pleasure. Let's walk together, shall we? The last few shifts had been quiet. Not that Jemiatha Station sat at the crossroads of the universe or anything like that, but they had their regulars and their usual traffic. Of course, part of that usual traffic had been the tinker, who'd come in three, four times a cycle, and not always more trouble than she was worth. Had an eye for interesting tech, did the tinker, and she'd taught him a thing or two about micro-repairs, which he hadn't thought nobody could have done. Stu blew his breath out in an impatient huff. Not going to be seeing the tinker anymore at Jemiatha's, thanks to Admiral Bunter. The rest of the regulars, though. Word would have got out, Stu thought, staring at his diagnostic screen glumly about the tinker. That was worrisome, but flip side, it was a relief. Station needed its regulars, sure. And truth was, there wasn't much but Jemiathas out here, given the way most of the small routes run, which was another way of saying the regulars needed the station. They'd have to come back, eventually. It was eventually, Stu'd been counting on. Time. Time enough for one or to other of the experts to get their duffs out here and either talk some sense into the admiral or take him offline. Time was running out, though. The regulars, yeah, they'd run out of a void soon enough. The crews, that was another thing. He wasn't in any way trigger-happy. And Vez, downshift manager, Vez was, his opposite number and junior to him by just ten hours. He could trust Vez to follow chain of command, and he was senior. What he couldn't trust her to do was see Admiral Bunter as anything more than a parlor trick, half comedy and all stupid, despite what had happened with the tinker. And the crews? There was talk among the crews about cobbling up some cannon. He'd disallowed that on upshift. Vez, though, she'd let her crew go ahead with it as a side project, so long as regular work was done, and the materials draw was strictly from declared derelicts. Cannon. Stu shook his head. A surprise attack. He sighed. Problem with cannon and that surprise attack was that neither took into account the nature of a mind rooted in comps instead of human flesh. Vez was smart. Vez was a damn good tech. But Vez didn't believe in independent logics. She was a tech. A machine was a machine to her. And all the time, there was Admiral Bunter keeping station, protecting Jemiathas from pirates, the gods of space help them all, and inclined to view any attempt to differentiate between the Tinker's petty thievery and real pirates as pretty darn near piracy itself. Stu had backed off of that conversation the minute he realized how the Admiral was processing his explanation, and he had an uneasy feeling that he was now a suspect character. So far, they'd been lucky. That's what it was, Stu thought, and jumped when the diagnostics beeped twice for done. Within tolerances, he thought, running a practiced eye down the column, plenty good enough to go into the used inventory. He punched a button to print out a ticket and another to enter the part into the catalog. Lucky, he repeated to himself, 
They couldn't depend on staying lucky. That was the thing. Repairs wasn't the only department running nervous and thinking about ways to rid themselves of Captain Waitley's gift. Station Master was getting nervous, starting to listen to advice from chancy quarters, and it was all Stu could do to talk him into waiting just a little bit longer. For the specialist. Captain Waitley'd sent for a specialist before she ever left system. Trouble being, they'd never shown up. Hadn't seemed urgent, and Stu'd been willing to wait a little more. Then, well, then Admiral Bunterd fragged the Tinker's ship and Tinker inside it. That's when Stude put in a call to his own expert, Pinbeam. He'd sent it with his own hands. Got the ack. But no expert on that side either. Last time they'd talked, he'd asked the station master for 15 more standard days for a solution to arrive in the form of specialists. There were eight days left on that grant a time, and what Jemiatha's jumble stop was going to do if no experts ever did show up was more than Stu could figure. That's it for this week's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. I, David Afsharirod, have been your host this week. I'll be back next time to talk about the new Freehold anthology Forged in Blood with editor Michael Z. Williamson and some of the contributors to the book. I want to thank Eric Flint and Alistair Kimball, as well as Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And of course, thanks to you, listener. Join us next week here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>